0: All right, let me uh, read uh, Hebrews 12, um, verses 18 to 24. Um, this, so beginning of verse 18 of Hebrews 12, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure, that was what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The word of the Lord, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your blessings to us. Thank you for your word that that helps us to understand our lives and all that you are doing and, and have done. Help us to do that now and help us to see your glory for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to encourage Christians um, who were facing severe persecution in the first century and were being tempted to apostatize. Um, and uh, my, my personal view is that Paul wrote Hebrews, so I'm gonna say Paul said, and, and if you've read any of the literature, you can just say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I, I think I do know what I'm talking about. But anyway, that, I'm gonna say this is written by Paul. I think it was written by Paul. But, <clears throat> In any case, here we're writing to those who are tempted to apostatize. They're facing a hostile culture, just like many Christians around the world are. Ancient, See, the first century Christians were getting hit from both sides, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews thought they were traitors and apostates and heretics and deserved to die. The Gentiles thought they were threatening the whole social fabric of life and the world. They were haters of the human race because of their silly, ridiculous beliefs about God. And you couldn't, you could only worship one God, they said, and the the pagans just couldn't believe how ridiculous Christian teaching was, but how dangerous it was. So they were getting killed on both sides. If you got baptized, you die. That was it. They took baptism seriously, like the Muslims do in in, uh, in our world. Muslims don't care. You can get converted a thousand times to a thousand things, they don't care. But if you get baptized, they care because that means you have left the faith. You have left the true God. Uh, that's, the world takes baptism far more, more seriously than the church, it turns out, which is a disaster for us. Well, anyway, Paul is seeking to comfort these Christians. He points them to the reality that Jesus has fulfilled all the types and symbols of the old covenant. In this case, these are Hebrews. They're being pressured by their families and being challenged all along. You don't have a priest, you don't have a high priest, you don't have a priesthood, you don't have a temple, you don't have sacrifices, you don't have this, you don't have that. All the things they forsook in Judaism, you see. And Paul is saying, okay, yes we do. Jesus is the great high priest, and he and we are priests of God. We have a priesthood, it's us, and Jesus is our high priest. He is the one perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. We don't have to bring bulls and goats anymore and shed blood of animals because he has shed his blood. The one perfect, the one that, that those that sacrifice is pointed to. That's come. We don't need that anymore. So, but we have it in its glorified form. He is the temple incarnate. No, we don't have the temple, that temple, but the Jews don't, are not going to have that temple very long either. That temple is going to be destroyed and we will have the only true temple that there is. The church will be the true temple of God and Jesus is the temple incarnate himself. The temple is his body, and the church is going to be his body. But then he points them uh, uh, to more than individual faith in Jesus. He calls them to remember that by the work of Christ, they have been brought into the church of Christ, the place where all the promises of God are secured and find their fulfillment. And so here in chapter 12, he talks to them and calls upon them to remember that unlike Israel, who was called to gather around Mount Sinai, they have been called into the glorious Mount Zion. Two mountains, one prospective, the other fulfillment. The one was terrifying, the other is the most glorious place ever. He's calling them to remember that all that is mentioned about Zion in the scriptures, the Old Testament, All that is mentioned about Zion is now true of the new Jerusalem, the new Mount Zion, the new kingdom, uh, he is calling them to remember that Mount Zion of course was the place where Jerusalem was built, where the temple was, it was the site of God's house, it was the place where under the old covenant you found all the blessings of God. And remember all the things that are said about Mount Zion. And remember Mount Zion includes everything on it. So the temple, Jerusalem itself. It is the place where God dwells, the psalmist says. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. It is the place where Messiah is enthroned. Psalm 2, I've set my king on my holy hill, Zion. And it is the place from which salvation flows to all the nations. Micah 4. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law will go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem is the place of life. It's therefore the joy of the whole earth. This is where joy originates. Verse 40, uh, Psalm 48, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now, and just to be sure that they don't miss the connection, it's obvious connection that he's making, but just to be sure, Paul expressly states it in verse 22. We have come, he says, not to Mount Sinai like it was, but we have come to Mount Zion, the, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The church, of course, they know, was the city that Jesus talked about. He said, you, we're, you are a city on a hill. You are the new Jerusalem on Mount Zion. That is the hill. That's the hill of all the earth. And that's where the light of the gospel is going to shine forth to all the earth and conquer the darkness everywhere. It's going to, it'll be the instrument of discipling the nations. The city, the church, is that city. In the old covenant, Mount Zion and the city were kind of synonymous. That was the city was set on Mount Zion. Now Mount Zion is identified with the church. Jesus has established through his own blood. So as Jerusalem was the site of the uh, annual assemblies of God's people going under uh, 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 under the old covenant, so now the heavenly Jerusalem is the meeting place of the new Israel of God. And we have our festal assemblies every Sunday. We come together in festal assembly. We've been called out to celebrate and to rejoice. And we have a feast every Sunday. And then we have special feasts through the years, just like Israel had, that we set aside days where we celebrate and have festal assembly. But we do that in the church. Now, that's where these festal assemblies meet. And he goes on. So here, look and listen to the analogies then. So the church is God's city. He created it, he built it, he purchased it so that it is his own possession. And he dwells in it. He rules in it. It is his in every sense of the word. It's from there that he rules the world. It is the heavenly city. It, it has its origin in heaven. It's not talking about, you say say, this is the heavenly city," It's not saying, "We go to heaven. <laughs> it's the city that came down from heaven. So in Revelation 21, we're not talking about, John is not seeing when he sees the streets of gold and the pearly gates and all that. He's not seeing heaven. He's seeing the city that came down out of heaven that was set on the mountain. What is that city? John is looking at the church and he's describing the church in its true glory that is not visible to us all the time, of course. But this is the church in its true glory. Read Revelation 21 and 22. That's what you are. And when you read it, you go, oh my goodness, that, is, that doesn't look anything like us. Well, but it is you. This is where you're headed. This is who you are, that you are the joy of the whole earth. You're the place of life and blessing. This, the rivers of life flow out through you to the world. That's what we're talking about. Not heaven, the heavenly city, the city that has its origin in heaven. It is the fruit of God's grace and mercy. It came. It comes in, the, in Jesus and is, of course, his body but he comes down it is on the earth the earth and it's not the old jerusalem this is the new jerusalem the jerusalem that is from above that god that paul said is the mother of us all he says that in galatians 4 and he's talking about the church being the mother of us all so we have this it is there that we have this uh, Blessed communion, so that this New Jerusalem is the blessed city, the place of security and safety, the place of communion and society. The, it's the place from which life and blessings flow to the earth. It is also the place where the law of God goes forth and the justice of God is proclaimed, and it is therefore the central institution of Reformation, not politics. The church rules over politics and directs politics. We lead the world in every way, culturally, politically, socially, every way. And that's why we, can, we have judgment begins with us. When you look out and see the world messed up, you immediately, the first thing you should blame, the first thing you should look to to confess is our sins as the people of God. If you are the light of the world, why is there darkness out there? Darkness doesn't defeat light ever, anywhere, not anywhere. If there's darkness out there, why? I mean, I love, I'm, I, I can't stand what's going on today, and if I don't watch it, I'll blame all of those guys for the bad stuff, those stupid, crazy communist, crazy socialists, the, the immoral, they're messing up everything, is it their fault? Are they the source? Are they the cause of this? Well, yes in one way, but who is the first cause of this? It's us. Why don't they know how to rule? We haven't submitted to the law either. We don't know how to rule. Why don't they know how to love? We don't don't love. Why don't they understand about humility? Because we hadn't taught them. Why do women take wrong places? Guess who did that first? Why do women take positions of authority that they they shouldn't take? Guess who did that first? It was the church. We were doing that before they did. They go, huh, look at that. Oh, I didn't realize we could do that. Yes, we can, because the church does it. We lead the world, and that's why this city is so amazing. It's so dominant. But if it doesn't shine faithfully, if it's not faithful, then it, in, it becomes an instrument of death in the world. And that's what Israel became, which is why God executed her and divorced her. We have in this city, though, the glorious communion with God under the old covenant. The people were kept away from Mount Sinai. Uh, Paul says here, in, in, was a, there was like a fence around it. The Levites wouldn't let you get close because if you touched the mountain, God said, you would die. You weren't allowed to approach near to him. Now we are brought nigh in Jesus. We're brought into the very communion of the triune God. We're given the privilege of dwelling in His city with Him. There's a permanency and a stability to this glorious city that is missing in the Old Covenant. Uh, God's people lived in tents mostly in the Old Covenant. Now we dwell in a city that has foundations. We dwell in a glorious company. We come into, He says, and it... Paul says, an innumerable company of angels in general assembly, in festal gathering. To come into the city of God, to the place where God is enthroned, is unavoidably to enter the presence of an innumerable army of angels who always gather around the throne of God. When we go in to be with Him, we join them in the worship of God and the praise of God. When the law was given at Sinai, remember the angels surrounded God's presence, we're told in Deuteronomy 33. But the people were forced to stay away at the base of the mountain. They weren't allowed to draw near to that company. But now we are, because when we gather as God's people to worship Him, we, by the Spirit, ascend into the very presence of God, into that glorious company of angels that surround His throne we enter the holy society of heaven. The holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect join us in that worship. When you have um, the sanctus, holy, 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 we at that point in effect are ascending into God's presence. We don't feel it. It's not like going up into a fast elevator or anything. So, we, if we, It would be helpful if all of us, if you could almost feel the ascension. It, you can't feel it, but that's what's happening in reality. Again, we walk by faith, not by sight, but that doesn't mean we're pretending. We sometimes, I think, read that verse, say you walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, pretend that this is really true even though it isn't, so you can make it through. That's not faith. Faith is saying, no, this is absolutely true, I just can't see it. This is more real than what I think I'm seeing sometimes, you see? That's what faith is. So if I say, by faith, we enter into God's presence, I'm not saying we pretend to enter in God's presence. We kind of all agree to say, let's act like we're in God's presence. That would be fun. No, you really are in God's presence, which is why Paul says, listen, I want women to do this and guys to do that because of the angels that are watching you. Where do the angels come in? they come down to visit our church? No, we are going up. We've ascended into the presence that's what Paul says, we go into the presence of God. And that's where the angels are, and they watch. They are, in effect, participating as holy visitors in our worship. And therefore, we must be holy to show them. We instruct the angels in that way, as Jesus said we would do. And so, so, the, so that um, we have to be orderly and proper because the angels are observing our worship. This is why John, in the vision of Revelation, sees the church as worshiping in heaven. He says, I saw this assembly of people, and they're in, they're before the throne. Well, you see, again, that makes us think, oh, he's talking about heaven. No, he's talking about the worship of the church. But when the, wor- when the church worships, we worship in God's presence in the throne. We ascend to heaven by the Spirit. And that is the reality that's going on. That's why worship is like the most important thing you do every week. If, I, if you had an invitation to the White House, I don't care what you think of the present president or the past presidents, if you had an invitation to the White House, I imagine you'd change your schedule and take it. If I could go, if the president said to me, look, I, I want you to come. Can you come every Saturday from 10 to 12? Uh, we'll fly you up. Uh, I just want to talk and I want to hear what you think. I'd say, you know, uh, I got tennis from 10 to 12. I'm not sure. Let me think. No, man, I'm changing my schedule. All right, God has said, I want you in my presence every Sunday. And we go, "Uh, I got a picnic. Uh, maybe Maybe we can leave short, you know, before it's over. We don't understand anything you got to walk by faith. you got to see what's real. You think going to picnics and having family reunions, that's the best thing ever. Well, those are wonderful things. They're good things. But that's not better than worship. Nothing is better. Not the best ball game in the world. And I'm kind of a little bit of a fan, even though I went to an academic school that didn't emphasize sports. I went to the University of Alabama. We, (laughs) We don't really emphasize sports like the rest of you people. But I enjoy them, you know, kind of enjoy them. But that's, that's not more important. I love to go to games, but that's not more important than worship. And I better not ever start thinking that. John sees the reality. He says, no, the church is standing in the presence of God's throne. They're offering up their praises, and their praises are mingled with the praises of the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. Glory and security are being emphasized. The church is the safest place on earth. It is united with an innumerable company of angels, each one of whom can destroy every army on the earth. It's the host of God. That's the armies of God. And they do his will. And they seek to be ministering servants to us so that God sends them to protect us like the angels guarded the Garden of Eden. Nobody was getting in. There were only two of them. we got an innumerable company surrounding us. Open your eyes like Elijah, Elisha, and see the reality that there are angels working, defending, upholding, protecting, carrying out the will of the living God. Nothing can harm us. That's the truth, and that's the truth of... We don't need as much as our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where they are in real danger for being Christians. In China, they take great comfort in this. That's why they, even though they've been forbidden to worship, they will go and try to get into their churches that have been locked and do it in public. They know they're going to have their pictures taken. They know they're going to get visits from the police afterwards, and they still do it. And we won't come if it's raining. It's a disgrace. Uh, It's a disgrace. The angels stand ready to guard and protect us, though, as we worship. They continuously watch over the church to protect and defend it against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here we see again the glory of worship. That which the world thinks is the most silly thing in the world and the silliest and insignificant thing that's going on is the most important thing. This is the church of the firstborn that are registered in heaven, Paul says, the church may look weak and stumbling and bumbling, but it is the object of God's great love and His own special treasure. We have our names registered in God's presence. Why, why so? Because we are we are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. His name has been put upon us. We are His possession. And therefore, the objects of His special care. When we worship, we come into God's presence. And Paul says you need to know you're coming into the presence of the judge of all. Paul is not merely saying we have access to God through Christ, in contrast to Sinai, where the people had to stay away. He's emphasizing that we not only have access to God, but we have access to God particularly as he is the judge of all. So that when we come to worship, we are praying to, we are thanking and praising and hearing the word and responding and asking the judge of all to act. And he has said... I will hear my people. He will answer our prayers when we come into His presence. And that held per- unbelievable significance to the Christians of the first century. That they had been clothed in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. They were coming into the presence of the judge of all, and they were not afraid. They were happy to do it because they had the righteousness. They were clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and it became a great comfort to come before the judge of all, absolutely welcome, not condemned, with no fear of condemnation, and for the judge to say, what should I do? You tell me. What? Tell me what I should do, and I will do it. And they did, and that's what we must do. We are now privileged to appeal to God in his capacity as judge of the world. We can appeal to him to vindicate and defend us and our brothers and receive a favorable hearing. He's not sitting there going, there you go again. I'm so tired of you saying this. He goes, no, I love, I love to hear this. Thank you again. I will do what you say. And he acts on what we say. We are not shut out of justice. Now, now the world may take over, and they may, and it may not be very soon before we go to jail. If the Equality Act passes, I'm a criminal, immediately, on the very day. That's the truth, but I will have justice, because I will appeal, and you will appeal with me, to the judge of all, and he will work. There's no question about it. He will be the one who will bring justice. That is a privilege no man can take away from us or legislate from us. And that's what Christians throughout the centuries have known, and that's why they were able to stand with such amazing boldness in the face of death. I often have wondered, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know. To be like these guys, our brothers in China, boy, that's tough, that's tough. See people in in the Sudan, you know, being told, if you don't renounce Jesus, I'm cutting your head off, and they say no, and get their head cut off. To see all these things, Man, you wonder, but you see, the, the point is, they probably wondered if they could do it too. In the day, you will have strength for the day. It's like, uh, you know, I tell mamas who feel like, well, I'm overwhelmed, I got a 4th we they're expecting our fourth child, I can't handle three, and well, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I said, well, God doesn't give you four baby grace until you get four babies. You don't need four baby grace when you only got three. And that's the truth, isn't it? You don't get the strength to do it until you need the strength to do it. We'll have the strength to do it. This, but you see, this means worship is the most important thing that happens on earth. Nobody else has access to the judge of all and to the all-powerful, almighty God who can do anything he wants and who has promised to answer our prayers when we ask him. Anything you ask in my name, I will do, he says. Jesus says, ask him. He said, anything you ask in my name, he will do. And he'll do it for me. He'll do it because he loves me and he loves you. And so, ask. It's like, this is so crazy. If a billionaire told you, you know, Bloomberg comes and says, hey, I got a checkbook. What you want? I'm happy to do whatever you want. Tell me how much. Would you do it? I think I'd take his money and make him a little poorer, you know, just for the moment. But you see, what you would, uh, well, let's get character out of it. A good guy comes and says, I'm a billionaire, I'll give you money. <laughs> you know, you may say, I don't want that, I don't want that creeps money. But let's say it's a good guy, you would say, well, sure, I mean, really? He goes, no, I, I really want, it would be an honor. It would be an honor. So what do you want? You would, you would go ahead and say, okay, I mean, I guess, thank you, this is amazing. God has come to you and says, ask what you will, and I will do it. Open your mouth wide, I will fill it. He tells Isaiah, command me to do something for Jerusalem. Command me, I want you to. Tell me what to do. That's what I will do. Worship is the most powerful activity that any human being could ever have. It's the best, it's the greatest privilege we could ever have. We go to the king who has promised to hear our prayers and who has the power to answer every one of them. No matter how dangerous or foreboding the outlook it may appear to us, we can be assured that we will be victorious because we worship the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth. Because when we gather at the appointed time for worship, we come into the very presence of the judge who has promised to defend us and vindicate us and protect us against all his and our enemies. And that's not all. Paul goes on. He says when we gather, we come into the very presence of the resurrected Jesus. We come to Jesus, he says, the mediator of the new covenant. The congregation gathered around Mount Sinai looked to Moses as God's mediator and they listened to his words. We come to the greater Moses and we are and we are commanded to hear him as he speaks to us. And this is the glorious reality that Paul says what is happening in worship, you actually do hear Jesus. He tells the Ephesians, by the way, he says, you've been taught of Jesus. If you've been taught of Jesus, this is, now you say, wait a minute, the Ephesians, they never saw Jesus. They could never have heard him teach. How in the world did Paul, does Paul think that they heard Jesus? Because he assumes, he says, you've heard him. I wonder why you're living, because you've heard Jesus. If you've been taught by Jesus, you know this. <clears throat> How do they hear Jesus? They heard Jesus through the minister. He was faithfully proclaiming Paul. They, threw, they heard him through Paul. They heard him through others that, come, that came and told them the word. If you hear the word faithfully explained and propounded and set forth, you are hearing the voice of Christ, which is why very often you wonder, does he know something about me? No, somebody who told him. You know, We've had people get mad because they think their mother or somebody t- told on them. I had no idea that anybody was doing something, some illustration that just came into the head. What's going on there? Jesus knows you. And he goes, say this. (laughs) Say this. (laughs) I need you to say this. And I don't realize it. Dwayne doesn't realize it. But that's what's happening because Jesus really is speaking to his people. He really is. In the text and in the explanation and the application of the text if it's faithfully done Jesus is the voice that you're hearing and so <clears throat> we hear him and this is why Paul calls on the Ephesians not to forsake the worship this is uh, Hebrews 10 but it's so important he says let us draw near with a full of the true heart and full assurance having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about baptism there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now you see, here he calls them he says, if you need to give some thought to this, please give some careful thought. The word consider means sitting down and planning. Plan out how you can stir one another to love and good works. Now, what does that mean? What is he really asking of these people? He's asking them, you need to be an instrument in the sanctification of one another. What are love and good works? What is he saying? I want you to be like Jesus. You need to be filled with love and good works. That's who Jesus is. You gotta be conformed to him. That's what salvation means. Paul is actually saying, guys, realize who you are. You're an instrument of salvation into your brother. And it's very important because God uses you to conform your brothers to Christ. So you need to think about how you can be an instrument in the salvation of your brothers. Now, when you ask that, if, you, if I ask you that question, how, what are you gonna to do to be an instrument of salvation? You may think, well, you know, I'll make a list of people and I'm going to meet them for coffee and I'm going to give them some exhortation and some encouragement and maybe I'll, depending on who it is, I might, I might have to bring a little rebuke to them. You start thinking about that, which are, which are all perfectly fine. What does Paul think about first on how you're going to do this? Listen to the verse. Let us consider one another in order to stir up, to provoke, love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is." What's he talking about? The assembling of yourselves, coming to the festival assembly, coming to worship. It is the public worship of God, he's, he's saying. What a, what a weird thing for us modern Campus Crusade evangelicals. If you were to ask me that, I would have said, you gotta teach people how to have a quiet time, how to pray, how to do the, uh, follow acts, you know, follow the, and all of that is, is fine, but that's not, what, that's not the first thing that Paul pops into, into Paul's mind. Is, he says, no, I want you to quit forsaking worship. You're too casual. He says, I heard. Some of you are just, you're so slack. You come when you feel like it. You don't come when you don't feel like it. You come when it's good weather. You come when it's bad weather. You don't come when it's bad weather. He says, I, you you got to stop it. you got to make sure that you come together in worship. That's how... The, the preeminent way in which you're going to provoke one another to love and good works, you'll be an instrument of salvation because God works, God saves us, but he saves us through the ministry of one another. Exactly. God provokes us through one another. In Ephesians 4, he gives gifts so that each member of the body strengthens the other parts of the body so that the whole body can grow up into conformity to Christ Jesus. That's salvation so that you are necessary for my salvation. Of course, Jesus is the one who accomplished it. Jesus is the one who's working it, but he's working it through you, and your role in that is pretty significant, very significant. You have an obligation to help save me, and I have an obligation to be an instrument in your salvation. Why do I come to church? Well, I want to get a lot of stuff because you get a lot of good stuff when you come. It's fun to see you. It's fun to be with you. It's fun to hear how you're doing. It's fun to sing together. I love to hear the prayers. But the most, one of the most important things is not only that I'm receiving such great stuff, but I got a job. I got a job. I've got to encourage you, stir you up to love and good works. I've got to stir you up to be like Jesus. And there are going to be days I don't feel like that. I don't think I can do it, but I'm supposed to come anyway and sing with as best I'm able and pray with our, our minister and follow along and hear and rejoice in the word and encourage you in the middle of all of that. Paul says that's what it means. The word prov- provoke means more than just reminding one another. It means exhorting and encouraging. It carries the idea of, of moving another one to action. Paul calls upon the members then to be instruments in the sanctification, the salvation of one another. So it's striking that that's the first thing. Here's the chief thing, he says. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He doesn't mention small group Bible studies or fellowship groups or seminars or conferences or prayer partners. All of those are wonderful things. But the most important thing in his mind is worshiping together. And... And I won't go into it, but you, you know that when he says that, assembling yourselves together, he is referring to public worship. You can look at 1 Corinthians 16 and 20. That's, that's kind of code language for public worship, not just fellowship gatherings or home, home, uh, home fellowships or home Bible studies or small groups or something like that. Paul is speaking primarily about that. And now you see, he will want to do this because these people have a, have a genuine excuse for not coming. They're under persecution. For them to come to church was very dangerous. That is obviously why some of them are forsaking the assembly, and Paul knows that. And so he says, I know you're thinking, I can't go because it's too dangerous. And his response is, you got it backwards. You, you must go because it's too dangerous not to go. You, you're, thinking you're seeking your own safety in the wrong way. The safest place, Is going in the assembly because then you're in the company of innumerable host of angels. That's the safest place. Don't ever think that it's the most dangerous thing to worship God. It is the most dangerous thing not to worship God. So if you're going to obey this, you see, that means you really do have to deny yourself and love one another. You really do have to appreciate one another and you can appreciate one another now and this is why Paul goes on and says, esteem one another highly for their work for their uh, uh, in, for their work's sake, because what is their great work? Their great work is saving you, being an instrument in your salvation. And if you're gonna be an instrument in my salvation, thank you, I love you, I honor you. you know, I want your picture on my wall, in a way. And that's, that's how it works, because we, when we realize that's the reality, then he says, don't look down on, on, that, on that big toe or the little toe that member of the body that doesn't seem very important, you need that member in order to be conformed to Jesus. Honor the least of them, not just the leaders, but everyone else that worships God truly. They also are being used by God to sanctify you in various ways that you can't even number out. Honor them as well. Don't look down on them. That's why we love one another truly, not pretending to be nice. Even though there, we have to be honest and we say, no, that guy irritates the stew out of me. <laughs> he does. I've got to work to love him, but I'm going to work to love him. I can't just say he irritates the stew out of me. I'm sitting over here. Well, he sits over there, I'm over here. And I ain't looking at that guy. That's the way most churches operate. That is exactly the contradiction that Paul says you're denying the body. You're acting like you don't need a foot. Is that true? You, don't, you got a foot to spare? Hey, that's wonderful. You can hop around on one foot the rest of your life, and you can think that's okay. And that's not okay. The body doesn't prosper without all the members. This word exhort, by the way, is the same word that is used, it's the verbal form of the, of the nounal form that's used to describe the spirit. In John 14, Jesus says, I will send you another <laughs> comforter. It's the, way it's, it's the way it's translated there. It's this word. I will send you another exhorter what does the spirit do he stirs us up and carries us along in the way we should go in the way of righteousness and paul says yes and how does the spirit do that he does it through every member of the body we think no the spirit just comes i have to sit and he'll come and he's gonna give me this chill and that chill be memorable and I'll go on that chill for at least five or five, six days, and then I have to get another one. That's the way we think. Paul says, that is not the way the Spirit works. Do you understand? That's not the way your body works. That's not the way the Spirit works. He works through the members. We think, no, I've got to get it straight from heaven. No, God doesn't give grace straight from heaven. He gives grace through the members. Ephesians 4, read it again. He works through each of the members, strengthening all the other members of the body so that the whole body can mature. Grace is always mediated. Jeff Myers said, when some people are tempted to think, it's just me and God and the Bible, they should remind themselves that the Bible was copied, translated, preserved, passed on from generation to generation by the church. Why do we have a Bible? Because God has given the truth to the church and we are the pillar and ground of that truth. And we have the Bible because he has given it to his people. The word comes mediated through the church. Even the printed word has to be read and explained by someone that God has helped to understand so that it can be properly understood by the rest of us. Hear the word is the constant exhortation, the imperative throughout the scriptures. Hear it as it's read, hear it as it's proclaimed, hear it as it's mediated through the voice of teachers God has given you. This is how the Spirit works, not apart from means, but through means. This is how we are saved, through the voice and the actions of other Christians as Jesus speaks and works through them ministering to us. That's how it works. The church is primarily, therefore, how Jesus works now in the earth. He works through his people. He's not here with us physically, as I mentioned, but he manifests his presence in and through the church, which is his body. So we hear him speak. We hear the prayers offered up to him, the praise, and, and, in, and, and we get mutual encouragement and rebuke from him. We meet him in the waters of baptism and in the bread and wine of the table. And it is also in our present service to love and care for one another. We have to learn to think differently. Our salvation comes to us individually by virtue of being members of the body. And that's why we can grow in love and good works as we worship and serve and commune together as a body. Love is not something you can do in isolation, though everybody thinks you can now. They are filled with love toward people they've never met and will never meet. That's easy. And that's not real love. Love is something you must do in communion. You can't learn patience without being offended. You can't learn to forgive without being sinned against. Those things are necessary for you to be saved. You've got to be like Jesus, and you can't learn those things unless you're put in a place where you're forced to deal with those things. The church is that place. It's wonderful. So sin isolates God's mercy. Reunites and brings us together. Baptism teaches that there is no life apart from union with Christ and His body, and therefore we have to do. We have to live. I wanted to say, I forget it, It's time almost up here. Yeah, uh, I wanted to say something about the, the way God works in the means. What we call the means of grace. We think the means of grace are something that that I exercise privately. So I read my Bible every day, and good, you should. I pray every day. Amen excellent keep up keep it up and I meditate and I you know and I ask the Lord for strength I do I have that time where it really strengthens me that's very good but the means of grace that God has ordained are not private they're public and even our private exercise has to be checked and, in, and, in, and affected by the public by the public communion salvation is of the lord he saves though through working through others the scripture teaches that transformation comes from the outside in not from the inside out food we're told refreshes the soul not the body david fed uh, feeds a man and we're told uh, when he had eaten his soul came back his spirit came back to him now he's talking about yeah he felt he felt better he was he was famished and, and weak and he got strength again but it's described as if His spirit came alive. He actually was made alive and that's what food does for you. It's more than just giving you strength and fuel. It actually encourages and gives us delight and joy and especially if we're we're eating with others. Music calms the spirit. You know how music works. You remember being after the last exam, getting in the car, turning up the radio and driving along feeling good because that music, you gotta hear it. The rod drives out folly from the heart you would think if you've got a child that's foolish, you, he needs to read a book. And that's the way reformed people think. Yeah, you need to read this. Um, but the fact is, he probably needs a beating. Not an abusive beating, but a, a spanking. But the rod, foolishness bound up in the heart. The rod of correction drives it far from him. That's not what you would expect, but that's how God changes us from the outside in. Uh, rod gives wisdom, we read in the Proverbs. It also is used to convert the soul. The good word lifts the spirits. We're told, be careful about how you use your words. Paul says, therefore, because corrupt words don't minister grace. Now, hear that. He's not just saying uh, faithful words make people feel good; they they feel like you're showing them some grace. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the grace of salvation. He says, he says, speak in such a way that your words that they are. Uh, That speak from your mouth what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. He says, "I want you to talk in such a way that when people are being saved by your words, that God's grace is flowing through you to strengthen them and build them up to conformity to Jesus." That's how serious this is. This is a very real thing that we need to take fully and seriously as we read the text. So, in the same way. Um, words and deeds are our friends, the rituals and rites of the church, the things we call the means of grace, is, uh, are in fact the means God uses to bring to strengthen us. His Spirit uses the external means to change, to transform us. And this is why knowledge is primarily hearing the word expounded together in worship. We're really not meant to read the word only by ourselves. We, we, of course, must read it by ourselves, but you're not meant to read it primarily by yourself. A, the word, the Bible, is not given to you as individuals? It's given to the church. It's a communal truth. And we learn it in fellowship with others. We learn it best in fellowship with others. The Bible's a public book. So we have to learn it properly in communion, safely in communion with each other. This is why communal times of study are important. Prayer is primarily something we learn to do together, not individually. The emphasis in the book of Acts is when the church prays together with one voice, God moves in a mighty way. The sacraments were not given to the family. They're given to the church. And we're not, they're not mere visible signs or pictures of invisible realities, as we always say. They are signs. Now, biblically, what is a sign? It's not a picture. It's not a mere symbol. When God says, I'm going to show my signs to Egypt, he's not going to pull out a big flannel board and put this is Moses. Everybody say, this is the that's not what God is saying he's going to do. What are the signs in Egypt? The plagues that destroyed Egypt, destroyed all the gods. Signs transformed the world. Signs are not mere symbols. Biblically, what God does in signs Is transform everything. Changes are made through signs. So signs, biblically, change things. The sacraments are not things to look at or think about. They're not pictures of something that we hope will happen somewhere in the future. They are things that actually God is doing now. You are watching the hand of God do something right here in our midst when a baby is baptized. There is a great, amazing work of the Spirit being accomplished. That baby has been transferred out of Adam into Jesus, the most amazing thing of grace we've ever seen. And God does that, he says, by the power of his Spirit when the waters of baptism are used. God uses that right to make a big change. Sacraments are acts of God carried out through his representatives so it, uh, baptism is not a symbol of someone becoming a disciple. It is him becoming a disciple. You baptize, you make disciples by baptizing them. Then you teach them. So, But baptism is the point of discipleship, just like when the minister said, congratulations, you're a husband and wife, that's the point of your marriage. It's the same. Just as ritual actions we do with our friends and with our wives, strengthen our relationships with them without ritual actions, that is, giving gifts, expressing appreciation, smiling, hugging, shaking hands, listening and crying together, all those things. Those relationships will not grow. They cannot exist. These actions are not merely symbolic. They actually constitute real communion and real grace. They communicate real grace to one another. We could not live without them. We could not know love without them. And this is no different in the church. God communicates His love and manifests His grace to us by by means of coming in the Word and sacraments to us. The preaching of the Word and the sacraments are visible actions, audible actions, feelable, tasteable things. That shows us that God is actually showing us His favor in concrete ways. His grace comes to us concretely through these signs that deliver us from the old ways and encourage and strengthen us in the new ways. These are majestic seals that, amen, the truth that God has actually done these things. That's what a seal means. If you say, what happened to my child of baptism? I say, well, he's united to Christ. And how can you say that? Well, because it's a seal to confirm that very thing that God has said he did. We didn't see that with our eyes, but we saw the water. We know that it's there. God has sealed it. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Now he must grow up faithfully. You have to teach him, nurture him in the nurture, him in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So <clears throat> this is why... All the things that come in the church are so essential for our life. We don't think that they're as essential as they really are. This is why I cannot live without the body of Christ. I need it at all times in my life, especially in times of blessing and in times of sorrow. Times of blessing can be dangerous times. I need you to say, don't get the big head. Hey, you're a big shot, aren't you? You know, I need somebody to come along and make fun of make a little fun of me. So I realized, yeah, you're right. I, I thank the Lord for it. Yeah, well, th- we thank- we're thankful with you. Don't get carried away, but be thankful, and we rejoice with you. We're happy for you. But I really need it in times of sorrow. You're, never, you're not meant to bear the burdens of grief by yourself, which is what we see testified in all of society. Sorrows come, everybody has them. How are you going to bear up under them? Most people feel that they they believe in themselves, you know. Okay, good for you. How do you bear up under sorrow when you believe in yourself? Well, you don't. You collapse. You become helpless. You have to take drugs. That's not the way of life. And the whole world is showing us that's not the way of life. But that's all they have. They go to the mediator, the doctor, who will proclaim to them the word of truth and give them the sacraments. You go to the pharmacy and pick up the sacraments, and then you swallow them whole with water. You don't put the water on your head. You use it to to drink the bread of the doctor, the witch doctor. Well, this is why worship is so important. It orients us properly. It gets us to thinking properly. We see the realities that make up life. We've got to recover that. So please, God, we will do it and uh, keep persevering in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word that teaches us and uh, helps us to see uh, the places where we're not, not thinking carefully. I, I pray you'll help us uh, to understand these things better and better, um, that we might see your glory through them, and that we might be built up in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus.